Good afternoon. I'm Callie Crossley. Today we're hitting the rewind button on the week's local news, looking at it through a regional lens. Joining us today are Paul Pronovo, editor of the Cape Cod Times, Robert Whitcomb, the vice president and editorial page editor of the Providence Journal, and radio and TV commentator Arnie Arneson on the line from New Hampshire. Hello, everybody. Hi. Hi, Beautiful day. It is a beautiful day. And because it's such a gorgeous day here, uh, right outside these wonderful Brighton studios in Massachusetts, Arnie, I'm starting with you because you have good news. Goodness gracious. (laughs) We need some good news. The Gorham Paper and Tissue uh, Company is hiring. Oh, this is so exciting. This was the last (laughs) mill that was actually still open, but then in the fall of 2010, it was shuttered. And everyone's saying, oh, the end of the paper industry in the North Country. And then a woman who owns a company called Patriarch Partners. Her name is Lynn Tilton. She bought the distressed property. And uh, lo and behold, it is 2012. And guess what? Uh, They put 240 people out of work in 2010. They're up to about hiring 250 people uh, today. So it is really a remarkable story about investment, about hope, about turnaround. And here's something interesting. They spent a lot of money converting the plant from oil to natural gas and sort of a combination of methane from a landfill. They spent, I don't know, one and a half to $2 million on this conversion in just months because the differential in the price of oil versus the price of natural gas, they were able to to basically expense out the cost of the conversion. That's how much the difference was between what it costs to run this plant with oil versus natural gas. That's an unbelievable story. But can I just share one really fun piece? Because you need to know about the woman, Lynn Tilton, who runs the company that made the decision to run the risk of investing in paper mills in the north country of New Hampshire. Her name is Lynn Tilton. And this is just a few sentences from an article in the Wall Street Journal. I love this woman. I love this woman. Last year, private equity chief Lynn Tilton flew to Detroit to try to impress sales at one of her auto parts companies. She got a cool reception from Ford Motor, who asked if she was like other private equity chiefs that strip and flip their companies. She says, you must be mistaken, she shot back. It's only men that I strip and flip. My companies I hold long and close to my heart. She owns 74 firms with revenues of $8 billion. I am all woman. Sometimes it makes men uncomfortable. Yeah, she sort of run it like Berkshire Hathaway. Is it sort of like a Berkshire Hathaway kind of uh, management system? I think a little bit like that. But this yeah. woman is absolutely amazing, and and this company sort of spoke to her in her head. It's what her father told her she was supposed to do, and she is really remarkable. You should see what she looks like. I mean, she wears tight pants and has bleach blonde hair, and I mean, she just is the exact opposite of anyone who would imagine sort of in a Wall Street investment type. But she invested in this company. It is turning around. It is making the North Country so happy. It is a great story because it was someone who actually believed and took the time to make it happen. We'll see five years from now, but I love you, Lynn Tilton. I just can need to whole, tell you. Excuse me, Arnie. Can the whole industry come back up there? No. I'm pretty, pretty familiar no. with it. I mean, I, how much I, of it I, can I'm, come back? I don't think a lot of it can come back. And again, what they're doing is they're now moving into areas like specialty papers. I mean, I think that's what it can do in order to compete, which makes sense. But obviously, understand that energy costs was one of the biggest problems mm. for them. Mm. They could not compete. And, and oil was the biggest problem. Just the ability now with seeing the price of natural gas go down, suddenly it can actually look at places like China and can compete with them, at least on the specialty market. So I just need to let you know, Lynn Tilton is quite, quite remarkable. And she made a huge difference. What I think is interesting about this story, too, aside from you, you're pointing out the energy differential, mm-hmm. is that the they upgraded the uh, some of the equipment so much yep. in that year that they were down so that a yep. lot of people need training, like 16 employees who had seniority. They picked out from the people who um, they had to lay off, and now they offered them the jobs first, those with you know most seniority and, and expertise, to train on this new equipment. What that also means, though, is that when those persons get trained, that leaves 
some space, those 16 spaces for some more people to be hired. Right. So right. it's just such right. a win-win all the way around. And, uh, you know, it, it, just, I, it was just a feel-good story. I, I hundreds of people, hundreds of people came in for those jobs. Everyone is excited. And psychologically, remember, Berlin means is the, is the city that trees built. It's the city that trees built. And when you see the last paper mill shut down and realize the only thing left there were like prisons, you have to, your, your heart breaks for them. So this is really a, a, another statement about what is possible. And I'm going to go back to something that I remember I said this before. Andrea Merkel, you know, Germany is such a powerhouse in the EU. And Andrea Merkel reminds everyone in the EU, the difference between us and most of you is we still make things. Mm. The idea of making mm-hmm. things is so important. And Berlin is back to making things. That's if only Greece story. would make things. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> olive oil and some bitter wine. Yeah. All right, so Robert Whitcomb from the sublime to the ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta go to you. <laughs> because now we're talking about a city losing track of $10 million. Talk to us about this story. Yeah, the, the school department basically lost track of $10 million over the last couple of years, and that's that's the, a major reason for the city's financial woes now. The other, other reason, obviously, is the recession. It's an old mill town, and the mills don't see show any signs of reopening and uh, but it's pretty pathetic very bad oversight well, but I, well, where did it go? I mean, come on. <laughs> we'll find out. I don't know. I'll send you an email. Well, for a telegram, make it really old-fashioned. This, is, it's this is Providence, right? We'll find you. Well, this is, yeah, when, this is Rhode Island. Yes. And as you know, money money tends to go into a sort of Bermuda Triangle around here. And uh, in the case of Winsaka, you know, the struggling old mill town was kind of doing a little better for a while because of real estate uh, development from Boston. And, you know, people are kind of fixing up the mills, historic tax credit, but that really papered over its fundamental problems. And so to it, speak. It, yeah. so, as it were. <laughs> Paper. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it, the, the crucial expense, of course, uh, the, the central woe was the school department, which is very badly managed, but there are other parts of the city that well, are not well managed either. Anyway, the state will take over the school department, and my guess is the city will file under uh, bankruptcy following Central Falls and the uh, the expansive arms of a uh, bankruptcy uh, lawyer. Uh, just to be for point of clarification, it's Woonsocket, not Rhode, not Providence. Yeah, that's right. right yeah, yeah. Providence seems to have uh, dodged the bullet for now, uh, in part because uh, Brown gave them a lot of money in return for Brown taking over much of College Hill. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, okay. Uh, there was a staggering map the other day of what Brown Brown is getting in the way of. Parking uh, spaces and closed streets and so on. So I, I, I sort of think that Brown kind of came out ahead of that, uh, mm-hmm. ahead of the city in this, but the city was desperate. Can I ask a question, Robert? And that is, sure. is that, do they have a tax cap in that community as well? They do. Yeah, what the I, state, you're absolutely right, Arnie. Right. The, the, the state had to authorize them going over the tax cap, and they, right. they didn't do it. The legislature punted on that at the last minute. We don't exactly know why. I suppose we'll mm-hmm. find out in the next few days. But there's a lot of anger and confusion about it. There's rarely any angry, anger and confusion in Rhode Island. So this is an extraordinary day. <laughs> right. <laughs> a unique moment. A yeah. unique moment. The kind of the, right. it's sort of the New Orleans <laughs> of the North. <laughs> oh my God, Bob! The, oh, pe- no. the people who have been the people who are in charge of the money, Bob, are they the same people that have been there for a few years? Yes, uh, yeah, generally, generally. I mean, that it, the people come and go, but uh, has anybody checked to see their people. if they're. Has anybody checked to see if they have their passports in their hand right now? Uh, that's a very good question. I think they're probably uh, they're probably opening up a box in the Cayman Islands now, mm-hmm. you know, taking in the sun. Uh, we'll we'll find out more. I think I think most of it though, uh, Paul, is just incompetence and sloth. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Well, I think it's tragic that they lost track of ten million dollars, and yeah. the school department was ten million dollars uh, right. facing a ten million dollar deficit. I mean, that is just disgusting. Quite astonishing. Right. Sounds like Iraq and the Defense Department when they lost billions. You know how it is. Wait, a billion here, yeah. a billion yeah, there. What can I tell you? Yeah, but this it's is Woonsocket. Yeah, this is Woonsocket. Robert <laughs> Dirksen, one of my favorite Republican senators, the Wizard of Ooze, they used to call him. <laughs> All right. Well, continuing the money theme, down, <laughs> down your way, Paul Pronovo. Uh, lots of people are hoping that uh, the new passing of uh, approval on um, the Wampanoag uh, Casino means money and jobs for folks. Well, certainly uh, that's been 
the argument in favor of casinos. Of course, there are lots of arguments against them, but certainly uh, there seems to be considerable momentum here in Massachusetts for casino gambling. We all know uh, that they've legalized uh, gaming in, in the Bay State, uh, allowing for three uh, resort-style casinos spread th- geographically throughout the state. The one that seems to have uh, the greatest uh, sort of momentum is is in southeastern Massachusetts, down here, and in particular, in, in particular with the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe. They seem to be far ahead of everyone, and uh, they they had a lot of good news this uh, past week. Uh, not the least of which was a resounding approval uh, from the city of Taunton, where they want to build this casino. And uh, it, fascinating, about thirty six percent of the city's uh, 33,000 voters came out, you know, more than many presidential elections uh, to vote on whether or not they would be interested in uh, a casino, and they they said yes. And this is in the context of, of course, we remember Steve Wynn and Bob Kraft partnered up. They wanted to talk casinos in Foxborough. Foxborough, the town of Foxborough said, we're not interested in that. Big time, Uh, big time not interested. Lesser known, the the Aquinawampanog, another tribe that seems to be uh, trying to gain some momentum and isn't getting it right now, uh, they made proposals in two towns, Freetown and Lakeville, uh, also in southeastern Massachusetts, and they were shot down. So this is a big win for the Mashpee Wampanoag. Um, I, uh, I just want to, Arnie, before you speak, I just want to make yep. clear to everybody, this is the first uh, community in the state to say yes to a casino, exactly. just to underscore okay. that. What kind of special privileges do the Wampanoags get on this? Why are they so far ahead of everybody else? Well, uh, they have the way the casino legislation was written in Massachusetts. They said that a a, an Indian tribe would have uh, basically the inroad for the casino that would be located in southeastern Massachusetts, and that was. They would get priority yeah, yeah. as long as they hit certain milestones, <laughs> and that was in recognition of the fact that if Massachusetts went ahead with casino gambling, uh, a sovereign nation such as the Mashpee Wampanoag can go ahead and pursue the casino. So, so the governor said, "We'd rather work with you than ultimately against you." If the state wanted three, and then the Mashpee came over and said, "We're going to do one anyway," so you're going to get four. Uh, so the state wanted uh, wanted a piece of the pie, essentially. And and I think to Arnie again, I know you have want to get in here, but just to make. Clear- Clear that the community is promised from the tribe to get uh, 2.5% of net casino revenue or a minimum of $8 million a year. That's not chump change. They will also pay the city for a, a operational expenses for added police, fire, and help local schools in the amount of $4 million in, in light of our just talking about the school <laughs> over there in Woonsocket, that's some that's some real money. And the right. tribe has agreed to make $33 million in road repairs and other infrastructure improvements. Kitching. You know, water, yeah. sewer, and public safety <laughs> equipment. Yeah, you know, that, I, it's, I think well, that's why people voted for it. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to actually weigh in here. So you're going you're gonna to hear the common cause person in me coming out now <laughs> because I'm looking at the expenditures that the uh, Wampanoag spent on this, uh, 300000 between March 16th and May 22nd in order to get this passed compared to $730 by the Preserve Taunton's future <laughs> to stop the casino. So I, again, 300000 to 730 I mean, yes, it was a big turnout. Obviously, there's a lot of promise about money, but you need to share something with me, Paul. How wealthy a community is Taunton? Yeah, and exactly right. Taunton is one of these gateway communities. It has a very high level of unemployment. Uh, they see the the shot in the arm uh, of of money uh, coming annually into the coffers, as Callie just laid out, um, as being huge, and also jobs. A, a lot of jobs would be pumped into the community, and I think that's uh, clearly uh, very attractive to Taunton, and it's also also why some of the other cities down in this area, including no. Fall River and New Bedford, really wanted to vie for this same casino, and, and they uh, ultimately didn't, didn't win out, at least at this stage. Mm. But wouldn't a lot of the money go from local pocketbooks into the actual operator, manager of the casino, <laughs> and, you know, wherever Singapore or, you know, Kuala well. Lumpur or something like that? I mean, where, what, what's the net gain for the, the area, for, well. you know, for gr- greater Taunton? 
Well, minimum of $8 million, according to the Cape Cod Times. Economically, I wonder if there's a net loss of $8 million. I don't... Well, and that's... The locals locals would presumably be doing... I mean, how many people are going to go to Resort Casino in Ton? I love Ton. It's a great old town. But how many people are going to drive there from Connecticut? But look what the promise was. The promise was $8 million. The promise was we'll repair your roads and bridges, things that they don't have the capacity to do. This is very common. Dirty industries do it. Casinos do it. They target Mm. poor towns, they promise them the sun, the moon, and the stars, and they then spend a fortune in order to get the community to be convinced that this is exactly the outcome that we see. And you just heard what Paul said, a bigger turnout than you see in presidential yeah, elections, uh, because no president could deliver this kind of money. Well, but nobody you know, does the macroeconomics. No. Let right, me, right. Just uh, in conclusion, let me just say that the, the what uh, analysts have said is that they're going to capture the people who go to Connecticut from Massachusetts. So they're not worried about necessarily attracting Connecticut people. They're just trying to retain Massachusetts citizens in the state. And so that's the reasoning behind this. We'll we'll see. That's somewhat reasonable. There's something to that. Well, a lot of analysts say it's going to work. And the final thing is that they have to beat a July 31st deadline, so we'll see what happens. All right. We're moving on with uh, more interesting, even more interesting stories, including privatizing prisons and a bear run amok. We're looking at local and regional news with Paul Pronovo from Cape Cod, Arnie Arneson from New Hampshire, and Robert Whitcomb representing Rhode Island. This is 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio. Funding for our programs comes from you and Mass Eye and Ear, caring for children with eye, ear, nose, and throat problems using advanced techniques and leading-edge technology. Mass Eye and Ear in Boston and with locations north, south, and west of Boston. MassEyeandEar.org. And Samet's Blackstone. Clients certainly do thank us for our sponsorship of 89.7. Roger Samets, president. It's not a tactical buy, but it's something that builds awareness over time. And because the brand values of WGBH and of Samets Blackstone mesh, it adds meaning to what we stand for in a way that a tactical buy probably could not. To learn more, visit WGBH.org sponsorship. Next time on The World, a critical vote in Greece that amounts to a yes or no to the EU bailout. Some think the anti-austerity party is glossing over the details. Just like a nice fairy tale for stupid people. But Sunday's vote has real-world consequences for the Greek economy and the economic health of Europe. Greek voters choose a government. Next time on The World. Coming up at 3 o'clock here at 89.7 WGBH. If you have a vehicle that no longer works for you, put it to work for WGBH and turn that car, truck, trailer, boat, or motorcycle you don't really need into something you really want. It's Morning Edition. Donate your unwanted vehicle to WGBH. We'll take care of the paperwork, schedule the pickup, and you'll earn a tax deduction, all while supporting the programs you depend on. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. Call 855-426-2406. Great question. That is a great question. And that's a great question. It's a great question. What a great question. On Fresh Air, you'll hear unexpected questions and unexpected answers. This afternoon at 2, here on 89.7 WGBH. Welcome back to the Cowley Crossley Show. If you're just tuning in, we're looking at the week's local news with Paul Pronovo, editor of the Cape Cod Times, Robert Whitcomb, the vice president and editorial page editor of the Providence Journal, and Arnie Arneson, a radio and TV commentator based in New Hampshire. So, uh, Paul, back to you. You've had a bear running amok down there, <laughs> and it finally got caught. <laughs> this, this, this has been the greatest story, I have to say. Uh, and, and I'm going to quote uh, Eric Williams, our multimedia reporter. We had a furry fortnight. Uh, from, <laughs> oh, cute. <laughs> <laughs> can't make this stuff up. From, from Memorial Day weekend until uh, this week, a, a black bear uh, transited the Cape, and I, and I mean the entire Cape, uh, sh- apparently swam 
swam across the Cape Cod Canal, uh, wisely uh, choosing not to go over the Sagamore Bridge. Uh, swam across the canal, was was spotted uh, in, in sort of the Upper Cape communities that weekend, and then was in West Barnstable, which uh, is on the bay side uh, in the town of Barnstable, uh, I think on Monday of Memorial Day weekend. And before you knew it, over the course of two weeks, he had uh, walked, maybe even ran some of the time, all the way out to Provincetown. So uh, it was it was quite an adventure. People were following uh, this bear uh, literally on the ground and following it more figuratively because it was such a sensation on things like Twitter. If if you're not following Bear Swimmer, you've got to do it. It's really it's well, great. Well, reading. he was not bear. He, he was a dragon at P Town, so nobody recognized. <laughs> him. Dragon P O with a boa feather. Uh, uh, Paul, let me ask this question because I, you know obviously a bear wandering around is going to get attention anyway, and and certainly. <clears throat> of the of the kind that that it got but what i was taken with is that it's very unusual for the bear to be in those parts right this is the first time uh, a bear has been sighted on Cape Cod since colonial days. So this oh, is quite unusual. Now I understand. Uh, exactly. I mean, it's interesting because obviously their territory is spreading, and the good news is we hear the population is growing. So this most likely will not be the last time uh, that we uh, see a bear on, on the Cape. And in fact, uh, we're seeing increasingly uh, a growth of a wildlife population of fox and coyotes and uh, the return of the fishers and things of that nature. So bears, they're just the next in the line. But it was sensational because no one has seen one around here, and it was pretty accessible. People were spotting it all the way on its trip out to Provincetown. And finally, when it got out to the Outer Cape, as everyone knows the geography, uh, the Cape begins sort of wide, and it gets narrower and narrower as you go out. And the bear literally ran out of real estate and was spotted uh, in downtown Provincetown, not far from the Pilgrim Monument. And so that's when uh, environmental officials became a little concerned. Uh, They had been sort of taking a laissez-faire bear approach for a while, but eventually realized they had to uh, intervene. Well, what I learned from your story, because I kept kept missing this critical piece, because I'm thinking, all right, I I know that I've just learned that they're not usually found in this area. Why in the world is he wandering? So the headline saying he's seeking a girlfriend makes sense. He was looking for somebody to breed with, apparently. Driven away by his his mom. Uh, I mean, this is this is a story I think all us parents can relate to. Uh, send the kids out of the nest, get them to live on their own, and that's exactly what happened to the bear. And just uh, frankly, just headed in a particular direction, which uh, ultimately was fairly fruitless. Uh, so I'm, again, sh- I'm sharing your story, Paul, with one of my friends, and she's going, we got like three bear families in my backyard. Why is this a story? She can't even believe it. She goes, you want video? I'll give you the movie. You know, it's just so funny. And now you explain it to me. It hasn't been seen since colonial times. It's a big story. I'll give it Maybe to you. Exactly. Uh-huh. Maybe climate change explains some of these animal changes. Oh, of course. You know? I would think so. Yeah. And I think environmental protection has also helped. I mean, the, the populations are growing. and uh, But unfortunately, running man versus beast, you know, there's not a lot of natural habitat. Uh, even on the Cape where you do have a lot of recreational space, uh, particularly as you get out Cape. And, and, and the bear was literally running into folks. The D, uh, DPW driver went by. One of our reporters uh, on a lark on a day off said, I think I'll go down to the town dump. Uh, out in Truro and, and see if I can find the bear. And, and sure enough, six in the morning, she sees the bear lumbering along in the woods. Oh, my so, God. So uh, it, was, it was pretty fascinating. And it's good because it filled this gap as we wait for the sharks to return to Chatham. So <laughs> oh, we, we oh, got great. our animal fix in for a little while. Uh, and the Portuguese men of war. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. uh, quick question. Is it too soon to know if the, the costs of trying to track this bear and get it sedated and moved out were exorbitant or not or, or just within the framework of what you'd have to do with wildlife control in general. Yeah, I think it's hard to say. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Uh, I think they they, they were sort of in a tough spot, the the mass wildlife folks and the environmental police, because they were sort of um, damned if they do, damned if they don't. I mean, for a while, they simply tracked the movements and and really didn't interfere at all. But then when it sort of became boxed in to, uh, and anyone who's been to P-Town knows that 
it's you know the streets are pretty congested when you get down to the downtown area and commercial streets, so you really don't want to bear in that in that vicinity. So uh, that and also uh, to be honest, it became such a frenzy that it was becoming a tourist attraction, and people were going out of their way uh-huh. uh, to to find this bear to photograph the bear. Uh, and and you know if if we're living up with Arnie, you know people know how to interact with the exactly. bears, but down here they have no idea. And you know who knows what people will do. You, you can't you can't account for people's stupidity. So well, Arnie looks uh, the I think they had to do what the they bear did. Look the same. You can't tell. Oh, them apart. you can't. <laughs> All right, dum dum. None of that. We've been shaving for years. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, you're listening to eighty nine point seven WGBH and online at wgbh.org. I'm Callie Crossley. We're going over the local regional news with radio and TV commentator. Arnie Arneson, Paul Pronovo, editor of the Cape Cod Times, just heard him talking about the bear, and Robert Whitcomb, the vice president and editorial page editor of the Providence Journal. Uh, So back to you, Arnie, for a prison privatization, big initiative. Um, And this one, you know, there's a lot of places where uh, prisons are being privatized, but in this case, the process of deciding whether or not to privatize is also being privatized. Being privatized. <laughs> it's like, yeah, privatization squared. You've heard of this? Yes. Well, what, what people need to know is that about in 2011, the, the state was told that they were going to cut $4 million out of the New Hampshire Department of Correction budget. And that was a devastating cut. So like you're setting your prisons up to fail. And just as you set mm-hmm. them up to fail, you then tell agency officials, why don't you seek private bids to privatize our prisons? So it's kind of like a one-two punch. And as a result, New Hampshire may be the first state in the nation to actually privatize its entire system. It will be the first state in New England to privatize its prison system, in addition to which what you have are Vermont sends some prisoners out of state, but nobody actually has private prisoners in New England. Well, we're going to put the whole whole dog and pony show in. And the problem is is that we got four bids. The bids are so damn complex, 900 drawings, 20 binders of documents. And, of course, since we've already underfunded the criminal justice system and the prison system, there's nobody that can even open up the documents or look at the pictures. So what are they going to do? They're going to privatize the analysis of the private prisons so that we can decide, the public should decide which private prison bid they should accept. So um, this is going, we're going down the slippery slope. I feel like this is almost like uh, Halliburton. Remember when the Defense uh, Department hired Halliburton to decide whether they should privatize part of the defense industry? Yeah, that worked And then out Halliburton, well. that worked out exactly. Well, now we're looking Looking at privatizing, and we're even privatizing the decision to privatize. So um, that's part of the dilemma right now. And I think people are really concerned about what does this mean. And when you have a criminal justice system, your goal isn't to keep people warehoused in a prison. Your goal is to get them out. But if you're in the private prison business, guess what, Callie? You make money because people are there. And the longer they're there, the more money you make. So the idea of getting them out, the idea of making it possible for people to return to their community, that's a disincentive in the prison market. It's going to be interesting to see how the analysis actually works out because supposedly one of the things the private analysis is supposed to do is not only look at the four bids, but honestly tell us whether it makes sense for us to do this. Would there be a referendum Mm -hmm. vote on this, Arnie? No. Uh, no. This 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 would just go through the legislature and signed or rejected by the governor. And, and right now, the yeah, governor is for this. The, gov- the governor yeah. is supporting this because one of the reasons why they want to create these private prisons, Robert, is they want to put them on all the borders because it's not going to be about New Hampshire prisoners. They're going to say to Massachusetts, got some right. extra, we'll take them. Right. Connecticut, we'll take them. So this is really uh, – this is instead of tourism, this is our growth industry. Oh, it's great. It's like the state liquor store. You, you got it. <laughs> right. you got it. Well, right it, off the highway. Uh, it, I know. it should be noted that uh, privatization of prisons is uh, happening uh, all over the country. And it's also under a great amount of criticism and more analysis by uh, many social analysts who point out that it has increased the uh, uh, school to prison pipeline like threefold or tenfold. So there's a lot of controversy about privatization and where it where it leads to. Um, May I just give you one interesting story? Corrections Corporation of America, one of the biggest operators of prisons, private prisons in the United States, back in, I think, January, February, sent out a letter to 48 states. Remember this. And they were recognizing that the states were in this huge financial crunch because of the economic downturn and the feds were not sending checks back. And here's what they offered to the states. We will take all your prisons off your hands if you will guarantee 90 percent occupancy for 20 years. Mm. 
That's 48 states yeah. got that letter. Hmm. It proves my point. All right. Well, the well, triumph of capital. Huh? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, speaking of the triumph of capital, maybe, uh, Robert Whitcomb, a lot of conversation about Massachusetts dodging a bullet with uh, your with Kurt Schilling's company, video yeah. c- game company, which uh, has now gone bankrupt. And uh, it, there seems to be every day more twists and turns in the story. And so now uh, Citizens has filed a lawsuit uh, First of many, Callie, for everybody suing everybody. The state is uh, looking for a law firm to hire to sue various people. And so everyone's in the litigation festival. And the, the state's on the hook, uh, if you include the interest, for over $100 million. So they want to get – they want to – Decrease that amount as much as they possibly can. So I think in the next week or so, you'll you'll will identify the name of the uh, the law firm hired by the state to sue. Wow! And Citizens Bank, uh, just to be clear, has sued Kurt Schilling. They want That's two point right. four million dollars back. That's right for yeah. uh, for a, a credit card account, and I guess some kind of allegedly secured or was it unsecured? Anyway, a, a loan of uh, over two million dollars. Well, I don't know so where this uh, ends up, you guys, but, you know, what is the impact? Because this was, you know, really touted as a local firm that, you know, could possibly do well. And it's the kind of public-private partnership that a lot of states would like to have. And, you know. Well, the whole thing is ridiculous. I just have to chime. The whole thing is ridiculous from the start. It's a fantasy industry, a brand-new company. This isn't basic infrastructure, even a sector like biotech or you know, alternate energy or anything. It makes sort of Solyndra look like, uh, you know, like uh, the Union Bank of Switzerland. Mm. Uh, I mean, the whole thing was laughable from the start, as if I do so, say so myself, I wrote. Anyway, Go on, Paul. Well, I was just going to say, the thing is, I think Robert put his finger on it, the thing is we get starry-eyed about our athletes and and about Mm. our athletic teams, and I think perhaps sometimes not the best judgments are made. And I remember here in Massachusetts, Kurt Schilling said, you know what, if you don't work with me, I'm going to pack up and I'm going to go to Rhode Island. And there were a lot of people, a lot of people who said, don't let him do that. You've got to keep him here. He's he's the Red Sox, et cetera, et cetera. Ultimately, he went, and, and I'm sure some of those same people here in Massachusetts Massachusetts are saying, "Woo, we dodged a bullet mm-hmm. because people do get wrapped up, and they and 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 they also don't know the intricacies of of the finance." And and this is a, a little bit of speculation, but you know, Kurt Schilling was is used to being the best at a particular thing, and mm-hmm. probably wanted to be the best at this, and maybe to his business detriment, bringing in the high flying talent. I mean, everyone said that Thirty Eight Studios had you know the uh, basically an all star lineup of mm-hmm. these computer developers. And you know, Paul, they maybe do couldn't afford that. Thing. I have had very, very bright people, you know, graphic right. designers, computer people, uh, really, really splendid people. Just the company model didn't make sense. But mm-hmm. let, me, exactly. let me ask you a question. My understanding was was that he was trying to get funding from private investors, and right. that was not successful. So what does he do? He goes to the state and asks the state to be the venture capitalist. And part of the problem I have with that is why the hell would the state do it if they knew nobody would put their own private that's, money that's in? Right. That, well, that, that should be telling to start. Yeah. I exactly. think it's the wannabe state. You right. know, they're competitive. <sighs> they want to be competitive with Massachusetts. It's sort of the second city syndrome. Yeah. Well, and, and uh, that's affects a lot least, of what they do. Right. It's an inferiority complex. Well, let's remember Kurt Schilling also. He's been one of the most outspoken conservatives I know. Oh, he's yeah, always totally. railing about government, wants like limited government. Party. And he puts his hand out and says, I, I want know. the state to back me up. I have another finger for once. him, but it's not my hand. Well, and hey, thinking, you can always ask. That? And if the state gives it, uh, you know, says yes, sure, and it did, why not? Right. You know? I don't blame Kurt. Exactly. He asked. That's right. That's right. He asked. All right. We got to leave it there. (laughs) We've been talking regional local news with Paul Protovo, editor of the Cape Cod Times, radio and TV commentator Arnie Arneson in New Hampshire, and Robert Whitcomb, the vice president and editorial page editor of the Providence Journal. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye. Have a great weekend, everybody. Coming up, we're taking a turn from the serious to the sublimely ridiculous with a tour of this week's pop culture news. You're listening to WGBH Boston Public Radio. WGBH programs exist because of you and Focus Features, presenting the new film Moonrise Kingdom, directed by Wes Anderson and starring Bruce Willis, Edward Norton, Bill Murray, Francis McDormand, and Tilda Swinton. 
Moonrise Kingdom in select theaters now. And Goddard House in Brookline, featuring their new Bed, Breakfast, and Beyond program, a two-, three-, or four-week stay without a long-term commitment. You can be safe and secure in assisted living and enjoy the comforts of a country inn. GoddardHouse.org. And from members of the Ralph Lowell Society, these most generous annual contributors lead the way in sustaining WGBH as a public media resource, available and free to all. WGBH.org slash Ralph Lowell. Henry Hill, the former mobster portrayed by Ray Liotta in the film Goodfellas, died Tuesday. On the next Fresh Air, we'll listen back to an interview with Nick Pileggi, who wrote the book about Hill's life, Wise Guy, which he adapted into the movie Goodfellas. Join us. This afternoon at 2 here on 89.7 WGBH. Support WGBH right now and you'll be entered to win a trip for two to High Clear Castle, known on Masterpiece as Downton Abbey. Prize includes round-trip airfare from Lufthansa, a four-night stay at Vineyard at Stockcross in Newbury, England, and a private tour with brunch at High Clear Castle, hosted by the Lady of the House, Fiona, Countess of Carnarvon. For your chance to win, visit WGBH.org. MIT's 100K Entrepreneurship Competition has generated billions in profit in its 23-year history. Hear what ideas this year's competitors came up with on Innovation Hub, Saturday morning at 7 here on WGBH Radio. It's Ragtime, a view of the week's coverage of pop culture news. It's an examination of the salacious, the ridiculous, and everything in between. But this being public radio, we'll conduct our review with the help of some highbrow analysts. Thomas Connolly, a professor of English at Suffolk University, and Rachel Rubin, chair of the Department of American Studies at UMass Boston. Welcome back, you two. Hello again. Well, the jig is up or somebody's lying or all both <laughs> together. <laughs> Miss Pennsylvania from the U- Miss USA uh, contest came out and accused Donald Trump of rigging the competition. She was all alone for a while and now uh, she said Miss Florida knew about it. But uh, now another another contestant has come out who she's still remaining anonymous, but she's saying the same thing. Uh, it gives one pause as to whether or not this all came together. Let's listen to a little bit of sound from the 2012 Miss U.S. Essay pageant, which was held on June 3rd in Las Vegas. Who will it be? Who do you guys think? <laughs> Miss USA 2012, Rhode Island! <laughs> Olivia Coco, which means the first runner-up is Maryland. So, Tom... And now we have one and a half, anyway. There's an anonymous person saying she saw a list. Both of them are saying they there was a list lying around of the final countdown, and so people knew beforehand who was going to win. Well, let's face it. Donald Trump is behind this. And ever since he's taken over the pageant, he's made it into absolutely his brand, his thing. And he's claimed that he saved it. Of course, he's going to want the best show possible. So I'm sure... Whatever criteria there were before, not that, not to say that it was particularly legitimate before, Trump is going to surely make it into a reality show where there will be a plot line and there will be a quote-unquote heroine at the end. Um, you know, not that beauty pageants have ever been a paragon of, of ethics or uh, propriety. Um, the, the, anytime that there's a competition like this, there, there's always a, there's always an odor about it of you know who, who's being chosen and why. I mean, it's sometimes for good reasons. I mean, a lot of people felt that Bess Meyerson was chosen Miss America after World War II because she was Jewish, and you know it was time and mm. it, it was in mm. the the zeitgeist to to do that. But I, I I wish I could say I'm surprised. But to me, the minute you, the minute Donald Trump's the short fingered vulgarian has his hands on anything, you know it's going to be corrupt. So Rachel, when Tom starts. Saying, uh, let's face it, Donald Trump is behind it. I was thinking, is he behind the story of it's being rigged? Oh. <laughs> that's, how, that's where my mind yeah. went. I yeah. thought that's what he meant too. Yeah. I was yeah. thinking, oh, Thomas has information here, <laughs> <laughs> and now he's going to share. <laughs> no, I, I, you know, my sense when I when I first read about this story, I thought. 
you know, I, I care much less about the rigging at that point than I do about the rigging in conception. You know, it's rigged against women who aren't skinny, usually against women who aren't white. It's rigged against women who haven't had, you know, access to good nutrition and so forth going up. So, you know, as I like to say, as a feminist, I say, yes, of course it was rigged. It's a beauty pageant. <laughs> mm. Well, it's interesting to me just to, you know, put a button on this, that Miss Pennsylvania was getting some pushback uh, because people said she was against having a transgender candidate. So I guess that was by the people who were pointing a finger at her saying she's not quite legitimate, saying, well, you know, she's not a nice person anyway. So mm. what do you expect for somebody right. who didn't win? Well, and, and, yeah. and, there, and, so there is, and there is this sort of concentrated conversation happening right now about who should win a beauty pageant. It's exactly. All yeah. It'd be very interesting if, if the anonymous person comes forward and mm. actually has some, some information. We'll see what happens there. All right, moving on. Uh, Game of Thrones, very popular HBO show uh, set in medieval times with a lot of, you know, clubbing and beheading going on. Uh, turns out that uh, the head of one of the beheaded uh, was based on someone that we all know. So here are the producers of Game of Thrones talking about the likeness of a former U.S. president. Oh, I have to say, we, people didn't, may not have noticed that they should back up. The last head on the left is George Bush. George Bush's head appears in a couple beheading scenes. <laughs> it's not a choice. It's not a political statement. It's just we had to use what heads we had around. Yeah, well, it was a, didn't have any other recognizable heads. Okay, so Rachel, when they said they had to use what heads they had around, they claim they, they didn't have a lot of prosthetic body parts on the show. So some <laughs> for some reason, there was one of George Bush. Well, I'll tell you. <laughs> this I seems crazy. Things say, <laughs> two things to say about that. One is they have to say that they have to use what heads they have around. The other is, you know, as many people get killed in that show, they really better invest in a bunch of heads in that case. Um, but the thing I like about this is it's just one of those wonderful moments when you can really see clearly what pop culture is for at its best. You know, because the head on the spike there, suppose it didn't have a recognizable, you know, face on it. Suppose it wasn't a, a former president that we know about. It still means the same thing. And the people who are watching it can see the head on the spike representing a traitor, and they can, you know, sort of understand it as making that same kind of symbolic statement as when the face is actually there. And you go, well, yes, George W. Bush is being beheaded as a traitor. I should uh, note, Tom, before you comment, that HBO is very unhappy about this and made a statement, we're deeply dismayed to see this and find it unacceptable, disrespectful, and in very bad taste. And they're going to make sure that this the statement and all of this is removed from any future DVD production. I think it's fair to say they did not know that these young producers were using the the head of George Bush in Game of Thrones. Well, I, I think what's missing from the conversation is the fact that all those beheaded figures, they're heroic figures. They're rebelling against a, an, an, an autocrat, against King Joffrey. And anyone who's associated with Ned Stark is a good character. I mean, this in, in American history, it would be as though, you know, your head were next to George Washington, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams. So it, it's a it's a positive thing. Oh, th- really? These, these beheaded well, <laughs> heads. Except that it's inherently sort of hostile to behead somebody who's living. You think? But I'm sorry. You know, ha- ha- You're being awfully wor- literal, Tom. <laughs> but having worked in the theater I'm, and having been in wig and costume shops, I completely buy this that, oh, yeah, we need a head. Yeah, grab that one. And also. So they're saying, you know, that their budget is strapped. Um, you know, we know that the, the television productions, you know, they've spent a lot of money. They were running out of money. I just I think the problem is, as you heard, they sound so casual and cavalier about it. Oh, yeah. George Bush has said, oh, yeah, we used him for beheading. Not uh, political. Yeah, yeah. yeah, not political at all. I mean, at you know, all. that may be true, but it's so disingenuous of them not to realize that people would be offended. Yeah, and I, I and that HBO, hello, their employers would be offended. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> well, I got a feeling that's not going to happen anymore. But I just that's just shocking to me. I have to say, just you know, stuff gets by. Who knows? Um, a note that uh, NBC uh, is going to stream or put content ratings on streamed shows. This is very important for a lot of uh, parents who are looking for ratings on some of these shows that can be streamed now, not just the ones that are broadcast. Uh, Tom. Um, the problem that some people have with this is they're <laughs> apparently people are worried that the rating won't be on the screen long enough so that you'll be able to read it. Oh, that's um, so you know people who are cons- parents who are concerned or others who are concerned, um, they're feeling this is you know too little, too late. 
Um, I don't know. You can certainly, you know, freeze frame it or there'll be a description on the network webpage. But it's interesting to me how this has brought out the fear or anxiety that people have. And it also shows you that people are watching television on the on the net now. Mm-hmm. That this is really, really an online activity. That's where they've gone, and, and mm-hmm. that th- there's so much concern that this has got to be done with you know maximum exposure. So you know, I will know exactly what my kid is watching. I don't know, Rachel, why they can't. You know, nowadays you look at uh, some television shows broadcast, and the logo of the network hangs over there forever. So to Tom's point, why couldn't they just leave the content rating up right. forever? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, it, it just it does sort of call attention to how bizarre it is in our media saturated. Moment that we have different policies for content and all every different form basically radio tv cable tv movies streamed content um you know i i i i i guess part of me just sort of cynically responded i mean maybe it will change that you know the children are much better at finding their way to stream content than the parents except for the That's very true. small yeah. ones and i i don't know it seems to me it might be better just to provide information you know about content, you know, rather than the rating that sort of blips in and out. And like, you know, most parents, I think most people don't really have a very strong sense of what actually earns any of the particular ratings. Well, so I, I would just be sort of more in favor of, of more readily available information yeah. than, um, than the ratings, which, you know, it's, it's like a sort of truism to say that we tend to fixate um, on what what body parts are shown over, you know, violence that's shown. That's exactly right. Well, it's also it, it shows showing up the, the the glitch between the regulation of what goes over the air, which is very heavily regulated, yeah. and this never never land of the internet, which the government has or, and the industry has not figured out how to manage. That's right. Exactly. Yep. All right. Well, who knew that a, an animated character for kids could foster so much conversation among adults? Well, there's a, a little pigtailed girl a Disney character um, whose favorite accessory is a pink stethoscope. And uh, she's a doctor. She's in her pretend life. <laughs> and, uh, and she treats the, the, the stuffed animals in her world. What makes her particularly special is that she's a little black girl and lots of adult black real doctors are excited about it. So here's a theme song from the Disney animated series, Dr. McStuffins. So, Tom, Dr. Maisha Taylor watched this with her daughter and then set up a website and included all of her friends and colleagues. She's a doctor herself and showed where they came from, how they trained or whatever, and said this is just quite inspirational and um, a great thing for all kids to see. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> my reaction reading about it and looking at the clips and so forth was terrific. You know, I thought it, it's so important for uh, girls and young women to go into medicine and professions and, and to, to have this kind of career path. It's also <laughs> – I found it very – you're treating the stuffed animals. I'm sorry. I thought it was funny and cute. <laughs> um, and also, see, it's, it's a very endearing concept. I'm, uh, but I, I, it almost got me to get over my Disney phobia. <laughs> almost. <laughs> almost. Okay. <laughs> How about, me too. How about you, yeah. Rachel? I'm not over it yet. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I can't. I'm sort I of – I think one thing it does it does show how important images are mm-hmm. and that there need to be lots of them and they need to circulate and you know I do think like little kids you know how it is if you have them they find the box of band-aids they're all over the stuffed animals you know they do have that orientation Disney has a long way to go to recuperate its image vis-a-vis race and gender and you know there have been times I've just sort of for my own purposes, of like being awake at night or whatever, made lists of the worst Disney characters in movies. And, you know, you, sometimes even to the extent that they've had to pull them off of, you know, DVD versions or just get rid of certain ones altogether. You and so, me, sister. Yeah, <laughs> I'm telling you. Yeah. <laughs> this reminds yeah. me, though, of many we years... We can compare lists Yeah, sometimes. exactly. In the 60s, the first show with a uh, black American actress, Julia, 
played by Diane Carroll, yeah. was in a medical office. I mean, she was a medical right. secretary. But I, I wonder if there's anybody at Disney who drew on this. I, it just uh, occurred to me. I, I doubt it. They but, don't usually yeah. seem to have any connection to history, but yeah. I digress. <laughs> uh, let's move on yeah. to our next story. A lot of attention paid to uh, uh, President Obama's trip to New York uh, because of his connection with a couple of celebrities who are holding fundraisers for him. Uh, let's listen to a little bit of the ads by both Anna Wintour and Sarah Jessica Partner, Parker rather, as they... Uh, ask regular people if they want to join them at a special dinner with President Obama and Michelle Obama. It'll be a fantastic evening and you can join us. We're saving the two best seats in the house for you, but you have to enter to win. Okay, the guy who ended the war in Iraq, the guy who says you should be able to marry anyone you want, and the guy who created four million new jobs, that guy, President Obama and Michelle, are coming to my house for dinner on June 14th. And I want you to be there, too. So go right here, right now, because we need him, and he needs us. Okay, our take is really doesn't have anything to do with the, the fundraising aspect. We're more interested in looking at the celebrity aspect of it and how it's become a center uh, of so much of politics these days and certain kinds of celebrities, Rachel. Yes, uh, no, absolutely. And I think, you know, it is a moment that um, does remind us um, – how enmeshed politics and entertainment are and that, you know, entertainment is, that politics are now part of entertainment and entertainment can be political. That said, I think I have a better idea for this. And that is, instead of having these celebrity dinners, I would like the people who win that lottery to be able to, you know, have dinner with, like, all of the various holograms of dead performers that have been (laughs) circulating these days. Are you really working the pop culture now? (laughs) That's right. And so I started to make a list. There's Tupac, there's Marilyn Monroe, there's Elvis Presley, and, you know, we've just read that... um, that there are, of course, going to be holograms of Jim Morrison and Bob Marley, too. That's my dinner party. That's what I pick. Uh, Tom, uh, what does it mean that certain kinds of celebrities are enmeshing themselves? Well, I just remember the trouble Jimmy Carter got into when he tried to have dinner with an average American family. Poor Jimmy Carter couldn't do anything right. But this, I mean, the Devil Wears Prada, Wintour is just so obnoxious. Her whole approach to America, I mean, she looks down on us from a great height. I mean, she she came over across the Atlantic to save Vogue magazine and, you know, uh, Better Homes and Gardens and so forth. And now she's going to save President Obama and Sarah Jessica Parker. She's worse. Representing, you know, this earnest career woman. Uh, you know, it it just it it just rings so false. And this idea of a lottery, and you too, even you, you dear little people with only three dollars, you can you can you have a chance to win too. It it's very strange to me. Also, packaging it. If you read it online, it's packaged in terms of Michelle Obama has done a lot for the nutrition in America. That's why we're having her over for dinner. Oh, interesting. I it's just the so top of my head came off online yeah. than it yeah. is on those on yeah. those on those broadcast yeah. ads. Yeah. Uh, are we going to see more celebrities? Uh, as we go forward, absolutely. This is absolutely. this is the beginning. This will they'll probably start be celebrities having a lottery to who's going to have the lottery to have the president at their house. Uh, all right, and his opponent. I'm sure that we're going to see some celebrities, yeah. you know, out for him too. All yeah. right. Well, thanks very much, you two. Uh, Professor Thomas Connolly of Suffolk University, Professor Rachel Rubin of UMass Boston. Thank you for joining us for another edition of Ragtime. Thank you. You can keep on top of the Callie Crossley Show at WGBH.org slash Callie Crossley. Follow us on Twitter or become a fan of the Callie Crossley Show on Facebook. Today's show was engineered by Antonio Oliart, produced by Chelsea Murs, Will Roselip, and Abby Ruzica. Our intern is Sloan Paiva. The Callie Crossley Show is a production of WGBH, Boston Public Radio.